This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hi, friends. Last time we were talking about how the fear of God when it's talked about by the biblical writers, specifically in the Old Testament, is pretty different than how we've understood the fear of God. We had a discussion around, should we be afraid of God? Because if we don't do the right set of religious things, or we don't believe the right things about God, or we don't believe in God, like God's going to send us to hell forever or punish us? Or is there something different going on when the biblical writers talk about the fear of God in the Old Testament? And what we kind of got into was how it's more like picture God as a nuclear reactor. If you're going to go into a room with a nuclear reactor, there's going to be a set of rules that you need to follow in order to not get killed or destroyed by this nuclear reactor. Things you have to wear, things you have to kind of change about yourself in entering this space. And so that's a little bit more like what the biblical writers had in mind when they were talking about God. And so this week, we're going to start talking about priests and entering the Holy of Holies and and that type of stuff, because it really kind of follows along this theme. Right. So what are priests? What is holiness? What the heck does all this mean? The idea of holiness is one of the most commonly used terms, one of the central foundations of all of this ideology, but what does it even mean? Uh, We mentioned last week the story of Moses encountering God as a fire on the mountain, and Moses was told two things. One, stay back. If you come any closer, you're going to die. And two, this is holy ground because what we'll explain here shortly is God is holy, and therefore when God touches things, those things either go boom and are destroyed, or if they can withstand it, then they become holy. Uh, so God passes along holiness or or makes things holy. Uh, so God made the mountain holy just by the fact that God was living on it, in contact with it. So when Moses comes into contact with that holy space, Moses, who in this scene uh, is going to be, in, in many scenes, the prototypical priest, has to change his presentation, change what parts of him come into contact with that holy space, uh, go through a whole system. We'll see what the Levitical system is, is a set of protocols, essentially nuclear hazmat protocols uh, for how to make sure that only things that can come into contact with holy things do, and things like dirty sandals that should not and cannot come into contact with holy substances don't. And that ends up being one of the primary roles of the priests. We'll see this stuff's weird. It's close to the ways most of us have probably grown up thinking about holiness, thinking about priests, but then there's way more to it. So that's today's show. Okay. So we got a lot of feedback after that last episode. Um, A lot of people excited to think about God in a different way and to think about the fear of God in a different way, because I know like the story I shared It's been traumatizing for a lot of people. What one person brought up was Adam and Eve. And they asked, why were Adam and Eve able to approach God before the fruit, but not after the fruit? As far as the the biblical story goes, in what way did that change things to where now 
you need all these, you know, protocols, I guess, to approach God. Ah, uh, yeah. Glad you bring it up because one thing we're going to point out in the discussion of priests uh, is how Adam and Eve were were set forth f- first as a kind of prototypical human, or in part as a kind of prototypical humanity, but also as uh, prototypes of priests. And so, you know, a lot of people have have asked questions of, you know, Genesis one, Genesis two. If you if you take them literally, they don't line up, right? The orders of creation are different. Uh, things that are happening, it, you can't take both accounts literally. And uh, so most scholars point out, yeah, these are two different texts related somehow to creation, early origins that are being placed next to each other. But I think even more specifically, what we see when we see Genesis 1 and 2 is a story that's primary lens is the creation of the world and humanity placed next to a story that is primarily an origin myth about the creation of Israel as the priests of the world. And so I've recommended a a book before, but uh, a great book on the topic is called Adam as Israel uh, by Seth Postel. Uh, But one thing that scholars are, are pretty well in agreement on is that part of the imagery in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is that Adam and Eve are placed as priests. And what we'll get into is one of the roles of, of priests is to be with God and, and mediate that proximity, that presence out to the rest of the world. Uh, but then, uh, ironically, sort of the flip side of that coin is priests are also to guard access to God's home, to God, uh, to keep other people out who, if those people get too close, uh, the thing will blow. They're holy bouncers. It, essentially, yeah. So we'll actually get into... Can that please be the title of this episode? <laughs> <laughs> we'll see We'll see where this goes. But that is one role of priests, is actually to act as guards. And uh, an, an interesting thing, so when we go from Genesis 2, part of the thing that that the humans, are, these, these prototypical priests are told to do is to guard the garden. Uh, it's a military term. Usually it's not translated that way or we don't talk about it that way. We we take take it as meaning like take care of the garden, right? So in Genesis 2:15 says then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden and the NASB which I'm reading right now says to cultivate it and keep it or the NIV says to work it and take care of it. But that phrase being translated as either to take care or to keep, it's essentially a means, it's a military term. It means to guard it. And the reason it's not being translated that way is if you don't think of this as symbolic of priestly service, and then if you don't think of priests as in part being guards to the temple, then it doesn't make sense, you know? Uh, so what are we, what are we guarding here? And there are a couple pieces where this is going to connect for us to a couple different questions I've seen. So the first is that one of the things happening in from this point here, Genesis 2, into the end of Genesis 3, is, is a picture of priests being deposed of their, their jobs. So 
Adam is put here as the priest to guard the garden. How does Adam fail? He lets a hostile enemy into the garden. Right? This is the whole serpent figure. Mm, right. Nothing, nothing was supposed to get in. Adam doesn't do a good job. Something gets in. Bad things happen. Right? The whole system fails because of it. Well, technically, he didn't let the serpent into the garden. The serpent was already in the garden. He ate the fruit and gave the serpent power, maybe? Uh, Potentially. Um, It doesn't say how the serpent got into the garden. But I think if you're reading this through one lens, you can read this as if the serpent was already there, a part of the scene. Through another lens, you can read this as Adam was, was, his role was to be a guard, right? So this is how this literature is working. You're supposed to be able to take this in 10 different directions. So let's try to break them one at a time. One is Adam and Eve are the priests, and part of the function of the priests is to guard access to this sacred space. And when that fails, remember I, I had made a case that one of the things happening in this whole Genesis story is based, and you can see this in Second Temple literature, it's based on the assumption that the, the divine beings that were in existence before humanity was created are jealous of the power that has just been given to humanity to rule the earth. And so those divine beings want to essentially stage a coup and seize some of that power from, from humans. And that is precisely what happens here. As a result, of this, whatever this Genesis 3 fall thing is supposed to be representing, as a result of the tragedy, Adam and Eve are deposed from their tasks. And you remember, so they no longer are there in the garden, but there are new guards set to guard access to the garden. These cherubim. Right. These flaming, fiery cherubim, which we'll see actually end up becoming part of the symbolism of the tabernacle where these cherubim get put on top of the box that is supposed to be God's house. So one thing that's happening is that the deposition, humans were supposed to be the priests, they lose their role, and then what starts through Abraham into then Moses and the Israelite system is God working humans back into their role as priests. Okay, so that's one way that I think we're supposed to read this. Another way is what this question is drawing attention to is that before whatever the Genesis 3 thing is, you have humans naked in a garden without anything to be ashamed of, which I think is probably an allusion to there's nothing defiling them. And they're there with God without any reason to be scared of contact, right? And then after the bad thing happens... It said they can't be in that space, and we mentioned last time that God takes the time to give them clothes, wraps them up in in animal skins. And this is a way, simultaneously with the deposition of priests, this is a way of this literature depicting humans being contaminated in some way and therefore exiled from, from the garden. Because now... Something has changed to the point where their contact with God would be dangerous, which I think is some of the symbolism in this wrapping of animal skins, covering the humans in animal skins, which is a a literary link to some stuff we'll look at later. There's this whole set of instructions 
for the Israelite priests of when they move the temple objects, which are very sacred, uh, how they're supposed to move them. Right? We'll get into their holy objects. You can't just touch them. The way they move them is they wrap them in animal skins to allow them to come into contact with, with humans. So there's this whole set of, and it's complicated, it's all pointing in different directions, this whole set of symbolism. I was just going to say, too, that this does kind of sound pretty crazy. And there's, a, there's some obvious questions here around, do we need to believe this about God? Or do we need to just believe and understand that this is what the biblical writers believed and understood about God? But we're going to save that question for a second podcast that we do called Utterly Heretical. It's a whole separate feed from this one. So if you just follow this feed in your podcast app, you're not going to get this other episode. It's a podcast that's specifically made just for our Patreon audience. So our supporters, you're able to support the show for $10 a month to get this second podcast called Utterly Heretical. And you can do that at patreon.com slash almost heretical there's a bunch of other episodes that we've done in addition to almost heretical that are already available for you if you become a patron and this episode about that we're going to do right when we finish recording this one about do we actually need to believe this about god and where are tim and i actually on that journey will be available on utterly heretical so just wanted to tell you about that we're saving that conversation we know that is a question in a lot of people's minds, and it's one we've received back from a lot of you, we are going to have that conversation and you can listen to it. So to try to summarize, one thing happening in the Adam and Eve stories is setting up this this role of priests. Another thing happening is this setting up this idea of contamination and exile. So I'm making the case that there are these subtle clues that the that one of the reasons right? We, we talked about there's this other reason given in Genesis 3 that has to do with life and eternal life and mortality and, and that sort of thing. But then there's some of these more symbolic, subtle uh, clues, I think, given to additional things happening in the literature. One of them is this idea of defilement or contamination that that prohibits proximity. So whereas before this serpent event, proximity was safe and easy and there were no protocols required, right? Nothing had to be in place. Uh, I think that's part of what's being depicted in the idea that they didn't need any clothes. Uh, There's no system required, no laws. Then what you get is stuff happens and they have to avoid that close contact. So they have to leave and it is a form of exile. Now this is both what we'll see under the Levitical system is any individual human who becomes contaminated or defiled is sent outside of the camp. They are exiled outside of the space, the land. Oh, whoa. And does that tie in then with the, we'll go outside the camp? Like what's that verse Mm -hmm. in Hebrews 13? Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. I feel like that's got to connect, right? Exactly. So one of the things that's going to be, I think, really profound and uh, meaningful in this exploration of priests and holiness in this whole system is going to be uh, where we start to see, I've made a case that I believe Jesus and Paul in the early church uh, believed that what Jesus meant was the end of hierarchical systems. 
one thing we're going to see is that the Levitical system, the priesthood, inevitably included with it an entire set of of social boundaries that included some and excluded others. So, for example, the the leper, right, or a person with a, a skin disease, which in a lot of English translations historically has been translated as leper, had to go live outside the camp, was, was literally outcast from the camp. And so when Jesus intentionally goes and spends time with people who are defiled, like the story of multiple stories of Jesus going to be with the lepers, it is Jesus, and this will be a fun part too, as a replacement high priest going outside of the of the camp to be with the outcast people. And, and then what we'll see is when Jesus essentially accomplishes the end of this Levitical system, then all of those boundaries and social hierarchies actually get thrown out. And I believe one of Paul's favorite things about what Jesus accomplished was that he put an end to this Levitical system and all of the social hierarchy uh, entailed with it. So we'll get into all that. I think it's super fascinating, uh, super important for just basic Christian uh, theology. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) But, okay, to, to back up, the individual who is defiled is outcast, exiled from, from the camp. To keep that defilement, to keep that impurity, that contamination away from proximity to God's home, to the holy thing. So the, the key idea is you have to keep separate, impure from holy. And we'll see that's a, a main part of the priest's job. But then, as we know... One of the main narrative stories of the Old Testament is Israel, the nation as a whole, being sent into exile, right? And we've made a case, I've talked about how N.T. Wright has made very popular um, the basic theological point that the Old Testament closes with Israel still in exile, and the reason Jesus is presented as a new Moses leading a new exodus is that the thing, the salvation that Jews were waiting for was a second exodus to be delivered from this exile. But part of what we've missed is that exile is promised as a part of the Levitical system. Again, part of why we're talking about all the weird stuff here in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. is Exile is, is the promised result 
of if too much defilement or pollution happens in the land and it reaches a point where you can't just outcast this person or this person or that person, then the entire nation will, one of the phrases that gets repeated, be vomited out as as like the metaphor is you're so toxic that the land can't stand the taste of you and will spit you out. So there's another thing happening here where the nation as a whole has become overly contaminated and cannot live with God anymore. And that is one of the things also that the Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are trying to sort of give us a preface, uh, a prelude to. mentioned Jesus, so I'm going to ask a question that I have around that. So you just said that the whole idea with the priests and what needs to happen in the Old Testament is that the impure needs to be separated from the holy. That seems like a pretty glaring opposite to Jesus, who went to the impure, the sick, the lowly, the unclean, the kind of the the outcasts, in order to be with them, in order to heal them, in order to get fellowship with them. So I, I want you to address that contradiction, seeming contradiction. But also, I think that's where some people get this idea that the Old Testament God is different or pitted against the God we see in Jesus. And so maybe address that as well. Yeah. So let's let's do that. And I'm going to rehash the, the main point of the last episode. And then I want to bring in another uh, question uh, I saw this week in response uh, to this, and it ties into the Adam and Eve stuff. The, the main heart of my response to your question, Nate, is it all has to do with why, why separate the impure from the holy, right? Why is that a requirement? Why is God dangerous? Why should we be afraid of contacting holy things, right? So my main point, and I'm, and I'm going to keep repeating this because even in my own personal conversations, uh, even just this week talking with my mom, uh, trying to process through all this strange stuff, the thing I keep seeing is that something about the way that we've all been trained to think about God makes us see sort of ev- everything I'm saying still gets filtered for a lot of us through a lens of, it's this way because God made it this way, hmm. right? The impure and the holy have to be kept apart because God wants the in, the impure and wants the holy it that way. kept apart. Exactly. Rather than, to use academic term, th- this is an ontological idea. Ontology, just the fact like this of- this is just the way it is? The way it yeah. is, right. And uh, so there was a question uh, we got that, the basically, I totally understand it um, that I saw this week. It was essentially the idea of, I don't know that this is any better. If the old view for me was God is really wrathful and mad, and that's why I need to be afraid. And the new view is essentially God created a world in which God can't be close to humans. Like, is that 
is that any better? And I think what I want to put my finger on is it's it all comes down to the assumption of, is it this way because God created it this way? And, and that's one more piece of why I draw attention to some of the complexity of what's happening in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And it's actually, I think, part of the thing we can see when we realize the role of priests was to guard the guard to guard the temple. This is something that's known in every in Babylonian culture and all the uh, evidence we have from other temple systems. There were guards, typically armed guards, that were going to block anyone impure from getting into the tabernacle system. We'll see in Israel's system, Aaron and Aaron's family are the, the chosen priests and only they get to go in and part of their job is to keep anyone else from coming close okay then we go back to the garden story and we see well adam is told to guard the garden and we start to see okay adam's playing a guard role and then the main plot twist of the story is a thing ends up a being ends up in the garden doing hostile things to the to the people in the garden right the serpent and I think if you're just reading the, the basic, one of the basic ways of reading this is, is this a, f- a failed security system, right? The serpent's hostile actions were allowed to happen because the security guards were sleeping on the job. So it'd right? be perfect. This would be where it'd be perfect if we had like Simply Safe as a sponsor of the show or something. And <laughs> we, could, we could just merge right into that. If you're out there, Simply Safe. <laughs> Give us a call. Just kidding. We don't do ads. <laughs> So so here's the thing, the assumption that we read because we read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 as all about the creation of the world at the very beginning, it leaves us with a number of problems. One of which is the question we always get, why is there a serpent in the garden, right? If God created a perfect world and if God is in the ways that us Enlightenment Protestant Christians have been trained to think if God is omnipotent, if God is all-powerful and all-good, why on page three are God's humans being attacked, right? That's That's the first question. Why is there a serpent in the garden? If God is in control of all this, why does God allow, allow something bad to happen? Then we'll see how this ties into... Okay, if this is about the creation of the world originally, then you have the Cain and Abel story. Who is it Cain goes off and finds a city and marries people, right? The classic question. <laughs> if if Cain is one of the first humans in the world. Clearly there's other people around, yeah. Right. So one obvious thing is that it, at least Genesis 2, if not this entire scene, is not about the beginning of the world and a perfect hostility-free scenario. It's actually the opposite of that. It is the creation within a, a world in which the default assumption is there are hostile threats knocking at your door. It's a creation of a little enclave. Remember, most of the world is wilderness. God makes a small little garden space within this wilderness world. So the world isn't perfect. The world is actually this crazy, crazy world out there. There's a small little space called the Garden of Paradise. And one of the tasks of the people is to guard and protect that space. The assumption is this isn't a perfect world that God created that has no problems or threats. 
The assumption is there are imminent threats. And so the question is, did God create the world this way? Is this talking about God creating the world? Or is it what this is actually talking about? Is God creating something within the world that already exists as it really exists? And maybe Genesis 1 is talking about one thing. Genesis 2 is talking about another thing. But when we read it all as God is creating this whole thing from scratch, it ends up putting us in the same problem of that I think Calvinism is tied to, which is blaming evil on God, right? Or blaming, not, let's not even call it evil, right? The fact of the danger of contact between impure things and holy things, that is not, uh, that's not evil. That is just a, a problem, right? It is a problematic fact that, at least of the world as these ancient authors believe the world to be. And I get why we're saying, if we think that we're saying God just created the world with that intrinsic problem, then you're right. That doesn't actually look any better because then this is, oh, God wants a world in which some are included and some are excluded. God wants a world in which some people are defiled and have to live outside the camp and others can be close. God wants a world in which we have to kill a bunch of animals just to come near, right? Versus there is a world, right? So one, one way of phrasing uh, what is happening in Genesis 2 is, is creation within a context of, of a cosmic battle, of a cosmic war. Uh, Greg Boyd has, has done some work years back uh, to make this case, that the actual assumption we should be bringing to those texts is that there's an ongoing war going on, which ties into all this strange belief about other gods and rebellions with other gods and wars for power and all that. Uh, within that world, God creates a little enclave with a small group of people who can be in God's presence, which is an image of what Israel and Israel as a priestly nation, and then the priests within that priestly nation uh, are going to be within the world. So all that's a way of saying, I don't think the biblical authors think God created it this way. I mentioned last time, I think there are various different explanations as to why this is how things are. None of them, I don't believe, are because God wanted this to be the way things are. So last point I'll make is just, I, I think we've just been, this has been so ingrained in us. It's, it's part of the major influence of Calvinism, uh, but it's also part of the influence of, I just think, enlightenment thinking on, uh, on Western Christian theology, which is that we come up with these categories of what God must be. God must be all-powerful. God must be all-knowing. And then we filter the Bible through those, those lenses. When the Bible doesn't use terms like that, that's not how uh, the biblical authors think or talk. Um, but uh, to me, there's just two, two main pieces that should poke forever, poke holes in that way of thinking. That if something's wrong here, it's, it's inevitably God's fault because God created this all. One is the entire point Nate, you and I, I think, have talked about this. The entire point of the Noah story, the flood, the rainbow, the promise not to flood the world again. We, have we touched on this? Maybe. Give it to me again. The entire point of that story 
is this is the same thing that we often de- decry that God should be doing is the thing that we celebrate in in Genesis 6 God says he will no longer do oops let me rephrase that the entire point of the Noah story and the, the way the story concludes and the the high point of the promise that God makes with this whole rainbow and new covenant is the the very thing that we get upset or discomforted when God doesn't do this in, in our world or in the rest of the story. And that is that the, the point of the flood story was that God promises that will not be how God is going to respond to problems in the world from here on out, <laughs> right? One way of responding to the problem is wipe everything out and start over. And what is the whole point of the, the rainbow promise at the end? Is God says, okay. I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> right. That would be a pretty terrible way for humans to exist in life is for God to push the reset button every time it gets too bad. So it is a grace. It is a mercy that God promises essentially to not be the helicopter parent that we want God to be, to not intervene when things go wrongly, right? So one is like, I just, I don't think we've thought about the Noah story well, but it's, and I don't mean to be overly critical. It is deeply ironic that millions of Christians send their kids to Sunday school to like dress up as animals and get on a a fake ark. I literally just had dinner with... (laughs) couple of the other days, kids just did this, dress up as animals and get on the ark as a way of like enacting out this, this Noah story, uh, which, I mean, the irony there just kind of sort of cracks me up, um, of like how bloody and violent the actual story is, right? It's not a kid's story, as we've said, Yeah. but the irony of celebrating that story, teaching it to our kids, whatever, and then saying anything wrong or believing anything wrong that happens in the world is is somehow a character blight on God. The whole point of the story is God's going to refrain from taking action every every time things get bad. And the flip side of that means things are going to be bad, right? That is the philosophical point being reflected on, being put forward in, in the Noah story. Right here in the first few chapters of the Bible, it's a very important framework for, for why I think the authors of the Hebrew Bible— can talk about evil and injustice in ways that don't end up putting them in the kind of bind that that Protestants after Calvin end up in the bind with of either God's not powerful or all of this is ultimately responsible. The responsibility for all this ultimately points back to, to God, right? Um, the second piece is just, I think as Christians, if your main starting point is that a, a beautiful, loving, innocent human being was wrongfully tortured and executed and a great injustice was done. And then we're going to point at that great injustice, something that never should have happened and say that God used that thing to help heal and save the world. Then that should right there explode our, our framework of like God is in charge of everything evil. And if anything wrong happens in the world, it's because God was supposed to create it differently. I know it doesn't. It should. It doesn't. Uh, my point here, and let's get back to the priestly holiness stuff. My point here 
to sum it all up, uh, I think we need to we need to do the homework, the ideological mental gymnastic homework to to retrain our brains to be able to think about both the Genesis uh, one, two, and three stories, and then all this weird stuff about the Levitical system that the basic facts we pointed out, the, the world is dangerous, contact with God is dangerous. You know, the tension you just pointed out of, why is Jesus trying to like go against these things? It's because God didn't want it this way. This is just the way that it was. So I actually think what Jesus believed he was doing was acting out what God has always wanted, which was to overcome these obstacles. The question has always been, how would these obstacles be overcome? The obstacle is humans can't just waltz up to God anymore. Something happened that this Genesis 3 story is depicting, that something changed about the intrinsic facts of humanity. No one knows for sure why. Something changed. The facts now, post-fall, to use that term, are, are that there's an, a great obstacle, a great separation. But that thing is a tragic consequence that God is working to overcome. And so the question is going to be, how, how do we overcome those, those obstacles? And what we're going to explore is, is the nature of those obstacles and then the role of priests uh, in, in overcoming those things. And then what we'll see is why actually Jesus as a priest is one of the most important lenses to understand what Jesus accomplished. Okay, so priests. There's lots of rules for all the people, but there's specifically lots and lots of rules for the priests. What they have to do, how they have to prepare themselves, how they have to prepare the people in the space. And I mean, it seems really, really nitpicky. And I always just assume that's to show how serious God is about, about us being good people and being holy. Right? And how serious he is about sin and and the eventually then when we see later with depending on your view of atonement, like how God has to deal with sin by dealing with us and covering us and all that kind of stuff. So I always just assume that's what it was. But I have a feeling that there's more going on there. Always. Yep. So one piece I didn't have uh time last episode on on why be afraid. Uh, one of the best pieces of evidence that it's that it's more than just fearing God's judgment is twice in Leviticus and at uh, in particularly important places in Leviticus 19 and Leviticus 26, which surround a whole set of the supposed uh, moral laws, is the line to fear my sanctuary. So, <laughs> fear fear me, fear God, fear the Lord is put right in parallel with fear the sanctuary. Why is that? Why be afraid of the tabernacle? That's just because that's where God is, right? That is the essence, the core of the, the nuclear power plant, the nuclear reactor, right? Uh, to, to get back to that metaphor. And so why the special attention to priests? Because priests are the ones who have to go close to that thing, right? And what we'll see is there's a whole logical system or uh, various systems uh, 
on display in the Bible about different gradations or layers of closeness to God, which end up creating different gradations of holiness, which have to be appropriately met with different gradations of of purity. The closer something is to to the center of the sanctuary where where God lives, uh, the more pure and the more layers of insulation have to be applied to that thing. The more protocols have to be followed uh, to get really, really close. The further out you get from God at the center, the fewer protocols are required. Still, we'll see is that there, there's a gradation from, from God all the way out to the worlds, the, end, the edges of the world. Uh, the camp that is set up is, is literally described in lengthy detail as a system of concentric circles. So one thing you'll probably have to do at multiple points in these conversations, for those listening, is, is Google image the tabernacle and see what the tabernacle, the basic layout of the tabernacle, which was essentially... Heat map of holiness. <laughs> it, I mean, of, it really is. Right. Like, you know, like you're looking at the, the kind of center of the whole thing and it's like that's, that's where it's the reddest and then it kind of bleeds out into the orange and the, you know, all the way out to... What, what, what's the outer area called? But, you know, like that's sort of what's going on here is kind of a heat map. Yep. So the, the tabernacle structure has three zones that are rectangular, but they are they're uh, like the boxes that fit into one another. So they're uh, gradations of, of zones. At the very center, you have what is essentially God's living room. It has a temple, it has a chair, it has a table with food on it, it has a lamp so God can see. It's very anthropomorphic. This is essentially God's apartment (laughs) called the Holy of Holies. Within the Holy of Holies, God lives or God can condense into a box. It's called the Ark. It's all this mumbo jumbo about a mercy seat on top. We'll get into the, the basics of it. It is a box with a lid on it. So there's a box within a room, then there's, that room is within a room called the holy place, and that room is within this greater tabernacle structure which has walls, but there's this outer courtyard space. So there are, essentially there's a place only God can go, then there's the holy of holies where only the high priest can go, and we'll see that high priest has to go through a tremendous amount of uh, extra protocols to be able to go in there. Requires more blood, requires more oil, requires special clothes, all these things to, to, to create barriers of contact. Then you have the normal holy place where the other priests can go, but still no regular people can go there. And then you have this outer court where all of Israel, that's as close as they can get. So, Remember, we looked at the scene of Nadab and Abihu. They, they sort of launch the temple system and they come out to the doorway or, or Aaron comes out to the doorway in front of all the people. 
This is this this is the barrier. This is as close as all the people can get as they can look at the door and stand in front of the door into the the tabernacle, right? So that's the tabernacle system. It's this it's this gradation of danger essentially. But then another piece that isn't uh, as as well understood is there's this whole meticulous set of instructions about as they move and they set up the camp in the land, the tabernacle at the center, where all the different tribes and subsects of the tribes are supposed to set up their camp within the overall camp. And literally the role of the Levites, we'll get into this, but you're probably familiar. The the Levites are the, the priestly tribe, right? Right. So only some of the Levites, only Aaron's crew actually get to go into the tabernacle. But then the rest of the Levites are like priestly assistants. So the Levite clan is actually supposed to set up their tents in a circle around the whole tabernacle structure as another layer, a concentric circle around. And then the other 11 tribes set up their tents in a circle around that one. So the idea is that the Levites are following these extra precautions and procedures and protocols so they can be in the, the next closest space to the tabernacle, though they couldn't just go in at any time, but they're kind of in that, like, the buffer zone. Right. I think there are multiple ideas happening at once. One is that the one of the roles of priests, again, not just in Israel, all over the world, just what a priest is, is a mediator A priest is someone who has to be able to get close and come into contact with God, but then goes and talks to the people and they act as a go-between, right? So because of that, priests need a whole bunch of protocols that the rest of the people don't need, right? They need protocols in order to go into the heart of the nuclear reactor, which is what the bulk of the Levitical laws are. It's only for the priests to to get close, right? But then there's a, a second part, which is this idea of the the basic conception of a gradation from holiness to impurity. So you have the system of concentric rings. So it's God, then the high priest, then the priest, then the Levites, then the rest of the tribes of Israel, then outside of the camp where the rest of the world lives, right? So the idea is to move from one iteration of closeness to God to further iterations. And the the job of the priests, in addition to being the go-between, so they personally need more protocols, the, the job of the priest is to run this whole system. And so one of the things, uh, the, the main callings of, of a priest is, is essentially to be a, uh, a hazmat specialist. Hazmat, if you're not familiar, just a shorthand term for hazardous material. I've thought about this. My, my brother was actually, uh, years ago, worked at a chemical plant where they were actually handling acid and would su- surprisingly and terrifyingly often have acid spills and have to go into emergency hazmat protocols. And my brother was actually on the on-call hazmat team to where like a siren goes off there's an incredibly toxic chemical just been leaked in a in a system in a building everybody else hears the alarm and leaves and my brother's part of the team that then puts on this crazy suit and goes in 
uh, to take care of the, He's the situation. Levi. He's one of the high priests. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a there's a sense in which uh, the the role of the priests they needed more laws than everybody else, but then the so in that way the laws were written for the priests, but then even the laws that weren't for the priests that were for all Israelites. Those laws were still given to the priests because the priests were the one to handle the system, to put those laws into place. And this will get very important uh, soon. But So when you're saying the word law here, is it more helpful maybe to imagine the word rule and not, I think, how we often interpret the word law, which is kind of a one for one for how we use law in our day to day life? which is how we're going to exist and relate to one another and how we're going to not like do bad things to each other. Um, Like, is it more about rules for approaching God than it is for God's design for what makes a good human and a good way to live? Right. So the, the word is Torah. The word as you've probably heard means instruction law as we think of it is not the the primary meaning the reason we've been calling them that laws is because a lot of them sound just like you have to do this you have to do this right they sound like rules they are rules um i think when we understand the context of them that they are rules for running this system uh protocols i think is is kind of getting closer to to what they are but i also think we've talked about how the bible isn't an instruction manual but I think what we're seeing is these laws were given to the priests as an instruction manual for how to keep the nuclear reactor from melting down. These are all the things they need to follow. Again, not because God wanted the world to be akin to people running a nuclear reactor, <laughs> but because that is the fact of the world. And therefore, these are all the things that will need to happen to keep things from getting bad. And so... One of the main jobs of the priests is to know these rules, to know the instruction manual, and to to facilitate this whole system, to run the power plant by making sure that no one breaks these rules. So Leviticus 15.31, you must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. This is an overarching purpose to why the priests have these rules and what the main concern is. Keep, and basically the rules end up being primarily elaborations on how to do this. Keep people from mixing impurity with holiness. Keep this separation because without the separation, people will die. Or Leviticus uh, 10, 9 through 11. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come so that you, the priests, can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. That verse actually comes on on the heels of the Nadab and Abihu story. That story, the takeaway from that story, was, hey, priests, your job is to distinguish between the holy and the common and to oversee that whole system for the the rest of the nation. This is the job of the priests. Or Ezekiel 44, 33. They, the priests, are to teach my people the difference between the holy and the common and show them how to distinguish between the unclean and the clean. 
So we'll get into the details of this whole idea of what is holy, what is clean, what is unclean, right? Why are these categories so important? Where do the ideas even come from? But to start, this is one of the baseline ideas of, of priests. And one thing that I've learned in my research is uh, this, this essentially is the heart of the law. This is why priests are to be legal experts, experts in the law. And, and one thing you see picked up later is that uh, kings are to, to be the people, you probably remember this language, that meditate on the law day and night. Right and don't forsake the law. Right, mm-hmm. that's because kings were to be priests. David, the ultimate king, in David's best moments, is presented as a priest. He wears the priest's clothes. He enacts uh, the ritual system like the priests do. <laughs> One thing I didn't see until I did this study is the priests really are the star of the show in the Old Testament. Uh, you've probably heard this whole like prophet, priest, king. And there was supposed to be a separation of, of job responsibilities, that kind of thing. I think the idea is actually, the underlying idea is, is totally different. It's that because, like I said, the main storyline is there is, a, there is a separation between God and man that needs to be reconciled. And, and along with that separation, there is a, a danger uh, that needs to be overcome. Priests are the one who do that reconciling. Priests are the one who overcome that danger. Priests are therefore the main protagonist of this, the story. And later on, you get new characters, prophets who act like priests in ways, and you get kings who are also supposed to be priests. Uh, but the, the main character was always this, this priest figure. And so maybe to, to sort of wrap up this episode, one thing that I've just found fascinating is I think most of us have been taught to think of the Messiah, uh, the Mashiach, as a king figure. Uh, but actually, long before there was any connection with an anointed hero figure being a king, uh, the priests are the ones who are anointed. Aaron is the anointed one. Aaron is the Mashiach. And, uh, and priests are the real star of the show. So that most people living in Jesus' time thought the Messiah was going to be the high priest. Hmm. It's the, the job Aaron had. He was the, the chief priest. And there are multiple, uh, the Qumran community, uh, the Sadducees, some of the other literature we have, uh, Maccabean literature, you have people literally pointing at one of the high priests in this system as it exists in Jerusalem a little before, a little after Jesus' day, saying, yeah, this is, this is the one, this is Mashiach. So one fascinating thing is that what Jesus does is, is ends up fulfilling this role of priest entirely apart from the whole institution, uh, which I just think is a fascinating, a fascinating bit, um, where Jesus is this kind of priest, but goes about doing this whole reconciling, overcoming the defilement thing, without any of the temple temple system, um, as a kind of critique that I think was following in lines with the prophets of this whole priesthood was good, this whole system was was a good step in the road to overcome a a tragic obstacle. 
but it created an inevitable power dynamic that most priests abuse throughout most <laughs> most history. And so what Jesus does is he essentially steps in as sort of this priestly figure, but challenges this entire priestly system. So while we're understanding all this, I, I think it's in kind of a helpful lens to, to have is the system ends up being affirmed and completely challenged at the same time. Uh, but that's part of why the main people who wanted to kill Jesus were the high priest. Hmm. Uh, Jesus was ultimately primarily a threat to the high priest because the high priest was the one who had a claim uh, to, to being the anointed one, the Messiah. So wow. there's so much there. There's so much that connects to the New Testament, Christian theology, all of it, and more. That's fascinating, and I think it does change a lot. And now I have lots of questions about what portion of this we need to believe. What does it say about you know, God being in control and do we need to believe guys? There's, there's lots of questions and we're going to keep the mics on even after this episode ends and record a second episode for our second podcast called Utterly Heretical. And you can get that at patreon.com slash almost heretical. And uh, if you want to contact us, get in touch, share thoughts or questions you have, we do, as you can tell, incorporate those all into the shows that we make and even they inform what shows we decide to make. So you can do that by going to almostheretical.com and clicking on contact. We love hearing from you and we read every single email that we get. We pretty much read every tweet and Facebook posts and all that stuff too. So just get in contact with us. We love hearing how this is hitting you and how this is, um, what you're feeling and what you're thinking in response to some of this stuff. So Thank you so much for being on this journey with us. You're not alone. There literally are millions of people that are thinking through a lot of these things that are deconstructing and reconstructing and reimagining what it can mean to be a Christian and how we can relate to the Bible and to God and to Jesus in new and better and more beautiful and life-giving ways. All right, we will catch you next time. Peace.